This is Flowers and Crowns, a podcast where we celebrate cultural icons, community leaders, creative pioneers, and give them their flowers. All of my experiences brought me back to just really this concept that to those who much is given, much is required. Flowers and Crowns is an opportunity for us to give credit where credit is due. We solve it by, number one, attempting to build and construct medical teams where there's representation. This season of Flowers and Crowns, we're focusing on and taking a deep dive into everything health and wellness in our communities. We'll uncover histories and stories that help us fully appreciate each Flowers and Crowns recipient. I'm Brian Lattimore, and this is Flowers and Crowns. In part one, and where we are in Vivian's story so far, it hasn't been just about achievement and status, but mainly about her incredible roots that are the foundations for her passion and fire. She's opened up about the love that holds her family together and the incredible women that her mother and grandmother continue to be for her. But most people know her today as sort of the boss woman at McKinsey who ascended to the heights. But to get to those heights, Vivian had to get to and through McKinsey. So I asked her what drew her to the firm. I came back from the Peace Park Riot and I did a couple of different jobs in uh, healthcare and uh, seeing it applied in U.S. systems. And that was very important because, you know, for all of the lack of resources and frontline capability of some really wonderful people who wanted good outcomes and could do a lot with very little resources, then coming back and working in the U.S. healthcare system, you saw a system that probably does have the resources and expertise to serve the population and employees well, but it's not always well organized and people aren't always getting what they need in the way they need to receive it. And so when I went to business school and came out of business school, I really joined McKinsey's healthcare practice to continue to work and build a career in healthcare. But I wanted one that didn't force me to choose a certain point in the industry in which to do it. You didn't have to be a clinician, but not anything else. A data scientist and not anything else. That you worked in pharmaceuticals, but not anything else. Or a payer providers, you know, this notion of an integrated view of the value chain in healthcare. And I just first wanted to, to join McKinsey and learn enough about the whole healthcare system to then, to then decide where I maybe wanted to focus and develop. So I didn't join McKinsey with any idea that I was gonna be staying there for 27 years or that I was gonna build a career in advisory services. I joined McKinsey because it offered me a job, it paid well, it had a, an office in Boston, which is where my then boyfriend, now husband, lived. So I had to try, we were trying to give our, our relationship some oxygen. We had never lived in the same city since I'd been back from Senegal. And so like everything, there were a number of reasons that, you know, in terms of your, your real life, that were really good choices of why joining McKinsey in Boston in the healthcare practice sounds like a really easy professional choice, but it was also near my family. It was also the same city that Nick was in and we were investing in our relationship and deciding if we were serious and we needed time together to make that commitment and go forward. My local church was there and that was was a benefit because you know I missed so many things when I was living uh, overseas. And even now, having spent 26 years in the UK, you know, my children who are British ask us where do we feel most at home when we go back to the US and I feel most at home when we are at church and in the black church and really reconnecting with our spiritual foundation and our culture. So at like everything in life, Brian, joining McKinsey wasn't a big strategic long-term choice. 
it was a good opportunity and also the right choice personally in the short term, just for what was good that year. You know, we weren't trying to solve all of humanity, fix the whole economy. We're just trying to say, is this a good job that pays well, where I'll keep learning in a personal context that I can sustain? That was it. And, and from there, I then began to just really learn and appreciate the full breadth and complexity of the healthcare industry and life sciences and beyond. And then two years later, we moved to the UK with my husband's job. Now, when you have a big career at McKinsey with the global profile of our firm, the platform and trampoline it really is for so many people's careers, you have this notion that McKinsey leads your, runs your whole life. And that was not the case. My husband was working in Starbucks and, and still works in retail and uh, food and service industries. And so we moved with his job to the UK. And I was ready to quit, Brian. I thought I'd been at McKinsey two years, that the Boston office had been great. I knew I was gonna find another job. I wanted to leave and find a job in the healthcare industry anyway. And I just felt I was ready to go. And then what we ended up doing was moving to the UK and I decided to stay because the office was very welcoming and friendly. And I wanted to, because our move had been with McKinsey, I thought it was unethical to just take the relocation money and not actually show up to work. So I said I was gonna work a year. I thought that was fair. And in that year, I found that global healthcare systems, the UK and the NHS specifically as a single payer system and all the other systems around the world were so different to what I'd learned and experienced in the US that I was really learning. Secondly, we didn't really have a big healthcare practice. We had a few colleagues, like Martin and Roy, Penny, Nikos and others who all were trying to build something new. And because we were starting from a very low base and we didn't really have clients and have momentum, we got a lot of freedom to actually build and be entrepreneurs and work together. And I just began to really enjoy it. And over the course of time, really the first, I would say, you know, always serving healthcare, life sciences, payer and provider, insurance and payer, pharmacy. I mean, I just was so, fortunate in the things we were able to build and expand in Europe, Middle East, Africa. When I look at what Vivian has built, I'm in awe. Even without a lot of details, I could hear the struggles in her story of building the practice from scratch. It's without question an amazing legacy, and hearing Vivian speak about building and leaving a legacy put it into perspective how much of a visionary she is. Now, if you work at a company or in any environment, you should not just try and do your job excellently and well. That was, of course, job one. But you want to build something that will last. You know, the, the acid test of what I've contributed at McKinsey isn't what happens while I'm there, it's what happens after I leave. You know, and I left McKinsey in the summer of 22 after 27 years. And I'm really proud of the fact that the healthcare practice that we built together with so many colleagues across so many nations nine offices in, in Africa, Middle East, different colleagues, you know, powering it in Asia. It's just been such an amplifier. And I'm just really grateful to all of the colleagues that we worked with. But we also put our own kind of stank on it. We also did it our own way because we hired diverse profiles. You know, we were the first practice to hire clinicians directly. How are you going to serve the healthcare system and not have healthcare providers, the people who understand, manage and deliver care 
helping to advise our advice to clients. We were the first group to have a real analytics core. And so there's so many different things that we innovated that are now standard practice, you know, both within the firm as McKinsey, but also within the industry that we're really proud of not only what we built in healthcare, but also how we built it. But I didn't start knowing that that's what we were doing. It was just a group of colleagues coming together, trying to do job one of serving healthcare clients excellently and well. On this journey, Vivian no doubt experienced questions about her identity and spaces she was working and leading. While these types of questions could give rise to self-doubt, Vivian seems to have always handled these moments with a confidence that assured diversity was and would be respected. I'm gonna say two thirds of the way through my time at McKinsey, you know, and from a personal perspective, I began to become more senior and have a larger external profile with my work. And I began to get the question, particularly as an American person living and working in the UK, really, I mean, people were polite about it, Brian, but they were like, where did you come from? <laughs> you know, you were here helping to build the Finnish or the Russian or the Middle Eastern or the uh, South African or the British healthcare system or serving a global client. And McKinsey is fronting up with a really diverse and interesting team, you know, with, you know, a black American woman in the mix and, and leading roles. They just didn't understand. It's like you're from Venus and I'm from Mars. And so interestingly, with that higher visibility came more simple questions. What's it like to be a woman at your level of seniority? Does it make any difference that you're a black woman versus being a woman? you began to be mistaken for other roles much more obviously you know being confused with someone who works in reception or they're looking over my shoulder to find the partner because they are just assuming that the partner's probably not a black female with an american accent you learn how being foreign in a culture not of a native culture is just as much a barrier as any other characteristic and so it but it was just interesting to me that as i got more senior as I began to work across broader aspects of the industry and have a more external face to my work, that I was getting these, what I call simple questions because my profile was so unusual and rare. I know lots of talented, qualified black women in the healthcare field, but my colleagues in the advisory space hadn't seen that. And so to be honest with you, Brian, I was uh, frustrated, disappointed, impatient by not having anything other than a personal story or an ethical argument as to why having women diverse profiles intersectional profiles in the room made a difference in business and decision making i'm here because my team and i are going to be well positioned to give you great advice to help solve your business problems that's what we're here to do i'm happy to make my story as an anecdote help you be comfortable receiving that advice but my anecdote is a single data point my anecdote is not pattern my anecdote is not strategic my anecdote doesn't change the system and i just felt that we needed better evidence-based answers to whether having diverse profiles in the room made a difference or not so that I didn't have to make you comfortable with my individual story. I didn't have to be your black best friend at work. 
it wasn't down to my individual coping skills, you and me doing it by ourselves, you know, fighting, climbing up the mountain by ourselves, but that there was data and evidence and content behind the value of me being in the room, even if it's not me as an individual. And McKinsey's training around the importance of an evidence-based, logical, rational, as well as motivational messages and the logic around that, we didn't have a data set around diversity in the workforce that will allow me to answer those questions in an evidence-based way. Because when I'm at work, Brian, I don't want to talk about myself. I don't want to talk about my individual journey. I, this is not about exceptionalism. Uh, we as a people are exceptional, but as individuals, we shouldn't have to lean only on our individual story to demonstrate to the world that we're valuable in a work setting or have impact on the global stage. And the burden of carrying that individually, that is what will break you down mentally and spiritually. And so I, I knew that if we had an evidence base, I would have, we, business, would have better answers to the question about how what we call today intersectionality and diverse profiles make a difference in the workforce. And individually, I wouldn't have to answer the same question five or six times. Wow. So, and I knew it would be helpful to others as well. And so in 2007, we began to do some work called Women Matter. And it was really with a colleague called Sandrine and other colleagues who just took businesses in France and the UK and, and we paid for it out of my healthcare budget. We, I don't think we had permission, Ryan. We were a little bit rogue, but we were like, you know, um, firm values, ideas, it was initiatives and, and really Sandrine and these other warrior women that I was working with, allies, together um, did a piece of work called Women Matter. And that was the first piece of work around looking at the representation of women on executive teams in a statistical and quantifiable way. And let me tell you, we got a lot of pushback as to whether we could do that. And of course, the data set wasn't big enough and statistically significant. But the answer to that, Brian, is not to tear down my little study. It's actually to do a study that's bigger and is quantitatively statistically significant. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we worked on that and we just kept building and building. And we found two important things before we get to quite a seminal piece of work in 2016, about 10 years later, called The Power of Parity. And that was that our clients were extremely engaged and interested around this topic because even more so than advisors, they live and work in the real world. And so they see a population that's 60% blue collar. They see a population with complex health needs. They see a population that's 50% or let's say in education or health, 70% women. and if there is an evidence-based answer to this, it's helpful to them. And so, you know, like all markets, I, I have the, the real world to thank and McKinsey really as a platform for doing really insightful research at McKinsey Quality that could use that, like all of the firm's research as a platform into the world. So our strategy was to take these distinctive strengths that the firm had, amazing client reach, a great reputation for rigor, and insight. And even if there's debate about some of the uh, choices the firm makes, we're at least having a debate combined with the quality of our insight and research. So if you could use those two like superpowers from McKinsey and apply it to the problem of diversity in work, then you'd have something that you could really change, change the context for all of our clients and they would help the next black woman 
the next black partner, the next Hispanic partner, the next LGBTQ partner, the next diverse ability person, not to have to answer the questions the way I did mm. as an exception or by example, but rather really have a data set. Mm. And we started with women because of 50% of the population, they're not a minority group. <laughs> they're just excluded from some aspects of business and decision-making, but they're not in the minority. Mm. We then went to a divert, culturally diverse profiles. And I say culturally diverse as opposed to black or Latino or African Caribbean, because we wanted to look at people who were culturally diverse relative to their context. So if you look in China, there's a lot of cultural diversity within Chinese ethnic groups and tensions and history within that. I may not know that history as deeply as like I know African-American or British black history, but there is diversity in every population. And so what we wanted was the concept, not just of race as a really majority culture defined structure, but rather difference and diversity of cultural relative to whatever your norm is so that you could look at African-Americans, Latinx, and other diverse cultures in an American context, but you could also look at Brazil relative to the indigenous Portuguese, Spanish, and of course, African diaspora that's there. So we want it to be globally relevant, not just a deeper explanation or a good data set for the UK or the US. And then after we looked at ethnicity and culture, we then added other definitions of intersectionality. We added tools that would allow you to combine the data set for the population with a data set from your company or organization. And that could be a company, it could be a department of business, it could be a charity. And then once I know that diversity is correlated with better financial and other performance, that diversity requires representation, inclusion, and behavioral practices from majority culture to reinforce that over time, and I have my own performance data, I can come up with a approach that's bespoke to me. And that's the source of competitive advantage, Brian, because our clients are trying to win, right? They're not trying to be cute, they're not trying to compete, they're not trying to show up, they're trying to win in a very, very competitive world. And so if you can then map how diversity matters for performance in business or charity or government to my organization, my department, my classroom, you can then have a very powerful evidence-based argument that's tailored to my organization that will then motivate me as a manager, as a school governor, as a real boss out there in the world to make decisions with diversity and inclusion as a required part of our outcome. And I'm so happy for the raw reminder we had in 2020 of how incomplete the journey still is for Black and Afro-Caribbean people in the world. The shock of George Floyd's murder to remind us that outcomes are still extremely poor for Afro-Caribbean people in all dimensions. Raw injustice like police harassment and not access to good health outcomes, poor education, all the way through to not having the support and resources that we need at work. But finally, majority culture being honest with the fact that we haven't yet done enough. And that was a global 
reconciliation, um, which is, I'm very grateful for to remind us and reaccelerate that. So, so I'm really excited and motivated in this moment, Brian, because we've got an opportunity to get our interests as Afro-Caribbean black people around the world to remind people that good outcomes for us are aligned with their interests in addition to being the right thing to do. Thinking about all of Vivian's contributions to business and healthcare, I wanted to know what she sees as leaving the biggest impact and what meant the most to her. My journey as a professional started in and remains rooted in the healthcare industry. But our work on how do you look at what high-performing companies and high-performing organizations do, and what we know is that all of them are more diverse. All of them are more inclusive, and they find capabilities to sustain that over time. And that's much bigger than healthcare, Brian. That's about changing the frame for how any organization, public, private, or third sector, anywhere in the world, giving them some tools to how they can incorporate diversity, equity, inclusion, and equality of opportunity into their approach. And McKinsey really just is a vehicle and a platform for scaling that. And that really is the is, is as important probably to my contributions in business and the economy as my contributions in healthcare. So when you come on to the external recognitions and having received a damehood on recognition from the crown here in the UK, it's for the combination of having really helped to contribute to business and the economy in a holistic sense, but also I'm equally proud of the part of the citation that talks about you know, access for women and other historically underrepresented groups, that, that both things really are a contribution. So the highs have been very high in healthcare. It's not even highs, the platforms, the opportunities have been very big in terms of healthcare as an industry, shaping leadership and evidence-based outcomes that are more diverse within industry, but it has not come without a cost, Brian. And so some of those have been big opportunities but with big opportunities, you also come up with some big trades. You know, I traveled and was on the road intensely for many, many years and just had the, the dynamic of all working moms of trying to be a good mother and a present wife, engaged partner, show up for my girlfriends. You know, the internet's happening, so you've got double life, you know, real life, and then you gotta have to be a meta-perverse person as well. You know, you're going through your own health journeys in terms of um, uh, your health and wellness as a woman, bearing children or not, psychological as well as physical journey that is, trying to be present in service to others. You know, um, you know sh just showing up for your friends, your godchildren, never mind for your family, never mind going to church. And I wouldn't say that it got to be too much, Brian, but what I would say is for all of my mental clarity and resilience and how motivated I am about the difference we can make in healthcare and the difference we can make in the world, I wasn't looking after myself. You know, we were right back to where we were at age 21, where my physical health, my psychological health, 
the pace I was going at was just unhealthy. And so I have really, and I got a real wake up call four or five years ago when I had some real serious digestive problems and other uh, things that really, you know, I see it as both God as well as my body telling me that we just have to pause right now. We just have to put, we just have to put a pause in what you're doing to restabilize the base. And it's not indifferent to what happened when I came out of school, when I was 21, when I look back on it now, Brian, but I just don't want you to believe that the opportunity space of healthcare, the opportunity space of thinking about how diverse uh, populations add to performance in all sectors, the platform and radiation that you and so many others can provide for our voices, that that doesn't come sometimes with a cost. And so for me, it just meant I had to just stop and pay more attention to my physical and psychological health. I just had to look back after my health a little bit better. And, and, and did that mean taking time off? Did that mean you, you know, was it, I would imagine you're a woman of prayer. Uh, I think you've told me that. So, you know, was this prayer? Was this time off? Was this, what, what was happening to pause? In my experience, God's plans are complete. So it was a physical intervention. I had to stop traveling to look after my digestion and have some surgeries so that my colon and intestines were healthy and not aggravated by the stress and pressure. And I had a very a traumatic interruption in my health, Brian. So I had to stop when I, I didn't stop because I chose to. I, you know, as I said, it was God and my body's plan for me to stop. Sometimes your mind will play tricks on you and let tell you that you can keep going. But just because my mind was always clear doesn't mean that it was making the right decisions for my body or for my spiritual health. So the first thing was is I did have to stop traveling and take four or five months off to work, off of my work to recover from the challenges and issues that I had. So the first stop was physical. The second impact of that stop was that I was in a spiritually calm and complete space. No devices, no external influences. I, you know, my husband, I described him as putting a cocoon around me. And he did that so that I would protect my physical health. He did that to stabilize and protect my children but it also gave me the space to reflect on my time, my priorities, and to pray. To be able to take the time to go into myself, to do my yoga, right? Not just do a quick prayer and jump out of the bed, right? To actually take the time to connect your spiritual prayer and anchoring your body and your mind to connect that with your physicality. And, you know, I used to, what some people call meditate, I would call pray and focus on my resolve and align my body and spirit every day, but I'd gotten out of that habit. You know, so it, it, it put me into a cocoon where prayer, restorative recovery for my body and my mind really was my only priority. And as I say, when, you know, when your God and your body tell you it's time to stop, you're just going to stop. So I'm grateful that my mind remained clear, you know, because sometimes you don't have the gift of mental clarity in experiences like that. But for me, I was able to just add more physical clarity alignment and better physical health and better spiritual care and attention and faith and service in my faith, you know, because sometimes when you're working too hard, you're not a good servant in the Christian sense. So it just got, it gave me the chance to realign, but it was not 
a small intervention. It was not brief. It was not just something that happened on the way to the office one day. It was before COVID. So, so I really was a major interruption in my health and, and gave me a chance to just give a wake up call to value my physical and mental and spiritual health as much as I knew I needed to. And so when COVID came and the leadership journey with and through that and service to others that's required, as we all still are recovering from the pandemic, the impact of that on my family, the impact of that on my extended family, the impact of that on all of our health and well-being, I also came to the decision that I was ready for a new chapter after McKinsey because I wanted to have more direct impact on health, well-being, and outcomes for more people. Um, and the only thing better than being of great counsel to really leading firms in healthcare around the world would be to work with and through firms in more direct service. And so that's what I hope to do in my next chapter. That's beautiful. Thank you for telling these deeply introspective, personal stories, because most of us don't know it, but most of us are going through something along with, you know, and some people we, we just see the challenges, yeah. you know, um, and that's all we see and that's all that's happening. And then I think the value of it is that you really see what you learned going through these experiences, Brian, and it also gives other people confidence that they're going to get through whatever they're going through because, you know, safe is hope. And if you give up hope or the belief that you can get through the challenges that are in front of you and you don't see how you can get through, that's when you start to give up. And we are not a, we are a people whose, whose existence and triumph has only been because of faith and, and our um, uh, ability to implement the right strategies and efforts with the right allies at the right time. Now, sometimes that ally is a change in legislation. Sometimes that ally is a role model and a sponsor at your job. Sometimes it's an inspirational teacher, but there's always someone or something who has intervened even just been a role model on your behalf. You know, the story of I could see in novels and books that there was a bigger life out there and therefore I became a writer in my own right or I moved into healthcare in my own right. So you've got to show people that whatever they're going through, that there are ways to get through it and be whoever it is you are supposed to be spiritually, physically, and mentally. And that that outcome, those positive outcomes, that you're worthy of those positive outcomes, recognizing that you've got to go through sometimes difficult challenges to achieve it. Now, you say, what does all of that have to do with healthcare? What does all of that have to do with, with um, uh, McKinsey? What does all of that have to do with the business realm or my job as a teacher, etc.? Because we all are role models and in service to others through the stuff that we do. You know, we're showing up for somebody at work. And, and you can use your professional context in which we commit so much time and so many people put so much of their self-worth and value in what they do as work, whether it's a job for money or how they pay their, fam pay their family or they're proud of the work that they do or they're not proud of the work that they do. But what you do for work and income is very defining. And so knowing that you can be your full self, make sure you look after your physical, mental and spiritual health whilst still doing your job as a teacher or at work or as you know an advisor or a healthcare professional for me is very important and so i don't like to focus too too much on myself and my own journey but i do think it's important for people to know that everyone's got a story and challenges they've been through 
we need to know each other as people better. When we know each other's narrative and story, we will have more empathy and engagement. We'll have more in common. And that it just helps people just know that they'll get through whatever they're going through as well. At least that's what I hope. For me, while listening to this, because there's so many different things you could receive flowers for, Vivian. But I want to give you flowers and say thank you for one you might expect, which is activism and fighting for for us. And I say us, meaning humanity, because it's women, it's people from Black and Afro, sort of Caribbean, the diaspora. But I also hear the word artistry. And I think it's your your ability to elevate work to a place that is spiritual, that really is deeply healing, that is uh, excellent, is a true gift to to myself, I know, and I know to so many others. And so I just want to say you, the human, are so wonderful and so gifted. And I know I've been a huge beneficiary of your work, of your activism, of your artistry, and so many people have been. And so I'm just excited that we, we have this moment while you're here, while you're healthy, to, to say thank you and that we love you. So thank you, Vivian. Thank you, Brian. You are very kind. And um, it is you know, only in, in uh, gratitude that I receive that. Um, and thank you as well as the many other voices who are, who are here. Um, the wonderful things about flowers is they're natural, they germinate, they blow with the wind and they'll grow in all new places. And that's what I hope as this uh, podcast continues to grow, but you've really touched my heart and it's been, um, it's been my, my, my privilege to be with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This episode of Flowers and Crowns is brought to you by McKinsey & Company. McKinsey is a global management consulting firm committed to helping organizations realize sustainable, inclusive growth. They work with clients across the private, public, and social sector to solve complex problems and create positive change for all their stakeholders. They combine bold strategies and transformative technologies to help organizations innovate and more sustainably achieve lasting gains in performance and build workforces that will thrive for this generation and the next. Flowers and Crowns is hosted by me, Brian Lattimore, and produced by MMWM and Circle Audio Productions. Flowers and Crowns is a community and we want you to be a part of it. To hear more from this episode and to receive updates on what's next from Flowers and Crowns, please visit us at flowersandcrowns.xyz and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for spending your time with us.